This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Federal Communications Commission Chairman Julius Janikowski in late September outlined principles of net neutrality to promote more open use of the Internet. What will these developments mean for business in the U.S. and other parts of the world? In a new interview format called Five Questions, Rajesh Jain, CEO of India-based NetCore, asks Wharton Legal Studies and Business Ethics Professor Kevin Werbach about net neutrality. In the second part of the interview, roles are reversed and Werbach poses five questions to Jain about opportunities in the Indian mobile market, which is going through explosive growth. So I'd love to hear about uh, uh, your experiences as part of the Obama transition team and there has been, a, in fact, linked with that is there's a lot of stuff around uh, net neutrality, which is now coming up in the U.S. So how, what do you think are the principles which, uh, which you think should be governing telecom in the U.S. You know, as part of all the changes which are happening? I mean, FCC is, I think, supposed to announce net neutrality guidelines that have announced today. But what do you think should be the principles, especially given the fact that mobile operators, of course, do make huge investments and they would like to keep them as walled gardens and so on. So how do you kind of have the right balance uh, in this space? Um, well, the part, of the part of the way you have the right balance is to have the right kind of process. I, I have been very fortunate to have a chance to, to work with the, the Obama administration's technology team going back more than two years to the, the early days of the campaign. Uh, when I got a call from a friend of mine named Julius Janikowski, who um, I had known from my earlier days of my career working at the FCC, um, saying that, that he was now working with, a, with a, a law school colleague named Barack Obama who was running for president, and he was assembling a team of technology experts as part of the campaign. And um, this was a, a fairly novel and extraordinary idea just in, in a presidential campaign. Uh, ultimately, the Obama campaign had several dozen of these policy committees where they brought in experts. These weren't uh, you know, necessarily contributors or people who agreed with everything that the candidate agreed with. They were, they were smart experts in, in areas, uh, you know, lots of different areas, transportation, uh, education, and so on and so forth. Um, but there was one on technology. Um, and, and our task was really to help develop the agenda for the, for the campaign. And one of the, the key points of that agenda, the, we ultimately came out with a, with a document that, um, that the president announced uh, during the campaign when he was doing a visit at Google, um, was the idea of an open Internet. It was the, the idea that the reason, or a big reason, that the Internet promotes so much innovation and so much tremendous uh, business investment and development is that it's structurally open. It, it's technology and the norms that it was built with uh, allow anyone to get online, anyone to reach any other point on the internet, and competition to, to flower. And uh, that that's important to promote and preserve. And uh, that while it's, it's very important that government not excessively intervene in the workings of the, the private sector and the internet, um, it's important that, that government take a stand in favor of that kind of openness and competition. And so that was something that uh, candidate Obama committed himself to and then when, when he was elected president of the United States, um, he, he made a really extraordinary commitment to not just changing the policies of government, but changing the way government works. 
So the Obama administration has, has brought in uh, lots of uh, very innovative people and, and has, in just a short period of time, introduced some, some really novel ways of making government work. So uh, to take one example, just, just to, to get to the one that you mentioned, um, the, the issue now comes up about how the, the government should address this issue of the open Internet. And uh, Julius Janikowski is now the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, uh, which is the agency that, that oversees communications networks. Um, and so he today um, announced an initiative to promote the openness of the Internet and, and to have the FCC consider a set of uh, policies and rules to ensure that. And the way he did it um, was uh, not just going and giving a speech and not just starting a proceeding, but announcing a website, which is now at openinternet.gov, with a video blog, um, with you know, Facebook and Twitter feeds, with an open discussion forum, and lots of resources for people to come together, comment, uh, try to discuss the issues, find out information, and engage in that process. So, you know, wherever that goes, that's that's the kind of thing the Obama administration has done across the board. I was part of the transition team, which is the small group that, that works after the election to basically set up the, the structures for the new administration. Um, and so I, I got to see firsthand just, just the, the extraordinary vitality that was there. And, there, and there's just a, a unique commitment in this administration to finding all possible ways. Technology is a big piece of it. It's not the only part of it. A lot of it is about social mobilization, reaching out to people and to communities, but, but using tools like the web and, and like social networks and, and like mobile um, to, to make the government process something much more open and participatory. Now, when you, when you look at the open internet, I mean, how does that play out in the mobile space? Because obviously their operators would like to keep it as controlled. I mean, we've we've seen these things happen. The Google Voice controversy, the app or in the app store is one example of it. So, so how does the concept of the open internet play out in the mobile space? So the FCC has a set of existing principles. They're not enforceable rules. They're just principles. Um, on uh, basically internet openness. And um, you know, these, these say things like you can't block someone from going to a certain website, you can't uh, prevent someone from using certain devices. Um, however, they don't apply to wireless. And they also uh, you know, are, are very general and they're not enforceable. So what um, Chairman Janikowski proposed today among other things uh, was it, taking these principles and, and making them enforceable adding on some additional principles about non-discrimination and transparency, and also making the, the principles, um, at least in general terms, apply to wireless as well. Um, and I should say, just, just by way of caveat, um, as I said, I was on the transition team. I'm, I'm doing some consulting now for the FCC and also did some consulting for the, the Department of Commerce, which, which has a related set of issues. I'm not directly involved in, in making these decisions, but I, you know, I, should, I should give the caveat that I, that I have an affiliation with the agencies. Um, the issue with wireless is um, the, the argument gets made that the capacity constraints, the spectrum constraints are so great that there's a need to, uh, to, to either block or, or certainly to, to heavily discriminate against certain kinds of traffic. Um, and and my, my personal view, and again, this is, this is my, my personal view, um, is that that can be taken to an extreme. There, there certainly are differences. There are differences within wireless. It depends whether you're talking about, you know, say, a, you know, a Wi-Fi network or a WiMAX network or a 3G network, and it depends if you're talking about in a rural area or an urban area. Um, so, so even you know, within wireless services, lots of differences. 
Um, it's not the same as a wireline environment, but um, across the board, um, the idea that you absolutely need to block in all cases doesn't make sense. Um, the need to manage the network appropriately to deal with congestion, to deal with illegal content and other sorts of situations, those are, those are real needs. Um, but I don't think there's a fundamental difference between those needs and wired and wireless. So, and I think that's you know that that's basically the position that the chairman of the FCC has has, has taken. Uh, but there's going to be a proceeding, and they're they're going to look at all the details. But I, I think if if one believes that there's a need to have a principle of openness, and the network operators. Uh, should not be able to have free reign in doing whatever they want with content and applications on their network. Um, the network operators, you know, should be able to have incentives to invest, and they shouldn't be limited in their own innovations and in how they manage the network. But if there's going to be a principle of internet openness, I don't see why wireless should be off the table. So now, assuming that these things go through, how does that change the landscape? Because this is going to be a fundamental shift. And when you talk to investors, venture capitalists, very few investors have actually, very few VCs have made money in mobile, even though a lot of investment has happened over the last 10 years. So every year, it's the next year will be the year of either mobile advertising or location-based services or whatever. Do you think this is going to bring out a fundamental change? And if so, you know, uh, will it really, does it have the potential to drive the creation of mobile data, mobile uh, services, data services companies? Oh, I think it's got tremendous potential. What, what's important to realize is that there, there are opportunities for innovation, opportunities for new businesses and new revenue streams at, at every level, layer of the stack. It, it sort of gets to some of the things you, you were talking about. There's nothing wrong with, with operators monetizing their investment. In fact, they, they should. It, there's a lot of uh, capital-intensive investment to build a mobile network. And there's certainly nothing wrong with, with an operator taking, taking revenues and profits out of that and taking revenues and profits out of what, what comes on the stream across their network. Um, but that shouldn't be the only opportunity. And so I think what, you know, you, you read the, the speech that the Chairman Janikowski gave, which is at openinternet.gov, it, it's really all about innovation. And, and innovation not just in a, in a, in a sense of uh, promoting social good, innovation in, in a business sense. Um, there need to be opportunities for content providers to innovate and generate revenue, application providers, some of the new kinds of intermediaries that you're talking about, the, you know, an independent app store provider, and all those paths need to be open. There needs to be competition, and, and the marketplace needs to decide. So I think if the FCC does this right, and they're, again, they're just starting the proceeding, they're, they're doing a lot of creative things to make sure they get the right ideas into the process. If they, if they do it right, I think it will catalyze a tremendous amount of innovation and a tremendous amount of business opportunity. I, I, I should you know, give one, one other example. There was a, there was a really striking interview uh, a few days ago with, with Ivan Seidenberg, the, the CEO of Verizon, uh, where he basically said, look, we're not, I mean, we're not a, a landline phone company anymore. We're a wireless and video company. Landline uh, telephone service is a declining business. And we're, we're sort of obviously maintaining our customer base there, but, but freeing ourselves from that. Um, and, and basically what he said was, I, I should have realized this a long time ago. We, for a long time, culturally, I thought, well, I'm running a telephone company. And, and, and a lot of the people, frankly, even the people who are promoting things like the Internet and the value of applications and content on the network – um, you know, not to put words in his mouth, but but he and I think other people in some of those industries said, well, no, that's that's not who I am. I'm not an internet company, and I think now they're realizing that um, that is who they are because that's the way the market is going. That there's a role for them to play. There's an opportunity for them if they free themselves from the sense of they're the infrastructure provider and therefore their business is in a certain place and not in certain other places. So, essentially, what we are in for now is I think a lot of disruption. So 
some models have been working for many years and uh, now because of this is one technology is of course driving a certain set of change and then you have the regulatory environment which is hopefully opening up things um, how do you see the next three four years you know, evolving in terms of the fact that uh, historically I mean for the last many years the US has been a little behind on the broadband side with some of the Asian East Asian uh, companies and there's been a lot of criticism of that in the US uh, but that I think now is changing with Verizon's rollout of Fios for example in the mobile it used to be said that uh, with SMS it used to be said the same thing but now I think from what numbers I've seen the US is now the second largest sender of SMS's in the world after China so there's an amazing resilience and the ability to basically um, capture new strands of innovation out there so if uh, you were speaking to say entrepreneurs in the US or possibly entrepreneurs outside looking for opportunities from a changing dynamic in the US market, what would your advice be? Um, you're absolutely right that, that disruption is coming. And, and, and I should say, you know, it's, it's nice for, for, you know, as an analyst and a professor to, to say it's disruption, it's good. There are lots of challenges there. And there are challenges, again, with, with real businesses that have invested real capital in their networks and, and, and need to, you know, need to recoup their investments. And, and there are challenges with public policy issues. I mean, who, who gets left behind? Is, is there a need for government action to, to ensure something along the lines of what we call universal service here? Um, you know, are there are there other you know consumer protection issues? So there's there's a whole set of, of, of things that need to be done to to dampen some of the, the negative uh, aspects of disruption. That being said, it's it's happening. Uh, you know, I, I I ask people sometimes, you know, who's the largest phone company in the world? And um, I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I, one answer would be Skype, one answer would be Google, and one answer would be China Mobile. Um, I don't know if, if, if I've left anyone out. It's it's certainly not a company. I think if I if I ask most people on the street in the U.S. that they would think of, um, and, and that's already today. Um, so um, the disruption is is going to happen. I, I think the opportunities for innovation and the opportunities for um, value creation for companies um, are, are looking at situations where you can align all of the interests involved. And that I think what what, what you described the model you described um, that that you're you're working on in India is, is a very good one. If your business model is, um, I'm going to kill the, the, the mobile operators, you're, you're going to be in trouble because they're, they're still very powerful, they're very strong, um, and uh, if you're dependent on them, it's, it's a challenge. If, you're, if your model, though, is, I'm going to do a value proposition that makes sense for my customers, I have something that makes sense for the mobile operators to the extent that they're willing to, to see the opportunity, I have something that makes sense for my partners, whether they're content or application providers, um, then, I, then I think there's there's value, and and the other thing is is you have to be nimble. You you can't assume that you're in a certain place because uh, it's all it's all up for grabs. I mean, Apple is is a great example. Uh, you know, are, are they a hardware company? Are they a, a network services company? Are they an operator? Are, what what are they? They're you know today incredibly successful. There's no guarantee though that that they're going to stay in that place, and I think they know that. Um, so, so I think everyone needs to be to be very nimble, and you know, for for investors and, and and new companies coming into the market, it's 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 looking for those cracks that open up where there's where there's something that's missing, um, and you have a chance to get in there and, and get to scale. I mean, that's that's the other piece of this. If you're if you're someone new coming in, you really have a choice. You can go for a niche, you know, find something that's defensible but small, um, or you can try and go broad. And those are obviously the big home run opportunities, but they're, they're very few and far between. So it's, you can't just assume that anything will, will grow to that scale. I'm going to ask you about Supernova. Um, 
So Supernova comes up in December and um, the theme that you have is I think uh, changing networks. So can you tell us a little bit, tell a little bit more about that? And I'd, I'd like to also, also ask that question from the point of view of markets outside of the US. You know, what are the opportunities which are there for probably um, entrepreneurs in say India or China who could think of coming in for something like for, for Supernova? Oh, absolutely. So, so Supernova is the annual technology conference that, that I organize uh, in partnership with the Wharton School. It's in San Francisco. This year, it's the first through the third of December. And uh, as you said, the, the theme is change networks. And, and there really are two, two sides to that. One is how networks are changing. Um, and, and that's a lot of the things that we've talked about. Um, at the physical level, um, but but everything even going up from that. So you know, at, at the the infrastructure layer, we're seeing this great shift from wire to wireless. We're seeing all these great shifts in terms of what it means to be an operator and, and how the network operates. Um, but above that, for example, if we look at the you know, the application level of the network. We're seeing the rise of, of cloud computing um, and this this massive uh, you know, transformation as as things migrate towards data centers and all the the disruption and opportunity that creates. Um, and we're seeing similar kinds of disruptions in, in the networks of, of content, in, in social networks. Uh, you know, we've got massive number of users on, on things like, like Facebook and, you know, and other you know, similar ones in, in other parts of the world. Um, but the, the next question is, what, where, where does that go? It, I mean, does that, when we look back 10 years from now, is that just a fad that a lot of people use? Or, or is that the foundation for a new dimension of the whole Internet and communications ecosystem? And I, I think a lot more of the latter, but I, we don't know exactly how. So that's one piece, how networks are changing. The other, the other side of it is, though, is networks as an instrument of change. Um, and some of that is social change and, and policy change. So what I talked about in terms of what the Obama administration is doing is all about using networks to promote change. Um, and I think you know, one of the, the things that I um, value very highly about this administration in the United States, it's very open to learning from the rest of the world. It, it's willing to recognize that there are areas where other countries have done things better or faster or more creatively than the U.S., um, and trying to incorporate those good ideas. And it's also, I think, doing a lot of very innovative things that, that other governments and other companies in the private sector should look at uh, around the world. I mean, if you looked at uh, Barack Obama as the CEO of a company and look at how he's rolling out his strategy and, and how he's empowering people inside and outside his organization, that's, that's a great lesson um, for lots of other companies. Um, so there, there's that kind of change. And there's also business change. How do you, how do you actually achieve some of these transformations that we, that we both have talked about, leveraging the networks that are there to, to allow for change. Um, so there's, you know, there's a, whole, a whole set of different specific questions and, and, and discussions that leads to, I, I think for people you know, outside the US, it would be very valuable. And one, one thing about Supernova, and you, you attended a couple years ago that I think you saw, is even though it's based in the United States, it's a much more global conference than most American technology conferences. And, and obviously with, with you know, travel issues and so forth, um, it can't be as much as I would like it to, but but it's it, it it's the, the mingling is really what promotes the value. People from lots of different perspectives, and even within the United States, it's not just Silicon Valley. It's people from other parts of the country, people from government, people from academia, you know, and other sorts of, of fields as well. So I, I think there's a lot to learn. I mean, I, I, for me, you know, one of the, the the irreducible factors of the digital world is as everything becomes you know virtual and digital. Lots of things that we had to do in person and through physical mechanisms no longer need to be. But the few things that, that have to be, are, are, it's that much more important. So, so I think getting smart, diverse, interesting people who you don't normally talk to in a room together is extraordinary. And, and I think that's especially important you know, if you're 
in another country or in a company or, or, or not in a situation where you're interacting with these people on a day-to-day -day basis and vice versa. The, the people from Silicon Valley, you know, they come out of Supernova saying, well, it's great where, where we live, but, but I, I never had a chance really to talk with someone who's running a company in India or in China or in Brazil. Um, and, and that's enlightened me as well. So I think that's, that's really the opportunity. Great, and thanks a lot. And in fact, uh, it was at Supernova that we started a relationship with uh, business relationship with uh, Mukul and the knowledge at Wharton, which has now expanded dramatically over the last two years. We're doing a lot of things on the mobile side in India. So Mukul could probably share that at some point of time. Absolutely. Now we're very, very happy to be an intermediary of that as well. I'm very interested in learning from you more about uh, the, the market in India where, where you've been active. And so I, the first question I have is, is if you, could you talk a little bit about uh, you know, how the Internet market and, and the communications market in India are, are different from uh, the United States or, or other countries in the West? Sure. So the market in India actually is very dominated by mobile. Um, so the mobile, we have about 400 plus million users. And uh, internet has been somewhat stagnant in the last year, year and a half at about 50 million, 45 to 50 million. So really what's happening is that unlike many other markets, the mobile is really becoming the dominant device in people's lives for voice, for value-added services, and increasingly for a number of people for mobile internet also. And it's somewhat similar to uh, what we saw in Japan in 99 where because of the uh, limitation of uh, broadband and computing, basically iMode, the service which Docomo launched, became the center of people's lives. So the mobile is already becoming that. There's a whole host of services which are being created on the mobile, and, but there are two challenges. So with, with both. So a challenge with the internet is that there aren't enough, there's not enough usage happening. And that has limited the growth in internet advertising. So the internet ads ad spend in India is roughly about $140 million, uh, which is still about 3% of the overall media spend in India, but it's still quite small. Now, mobile, on the other hand, the value-added services part, where if you look at uh, basically non-voice and non-P2P SMS, that's about a billion dollars. So you have a situation where the consumer spend is roughly about seven times that of what businesses are spending from a, from a from an entrepreneurial perspective outside if you see it's these are two separate opportunities which are there and but the internet so while you can you you can create services you'll be limited by to monetizing through advertising which is not growing google's getting a larger share mm -hmm. of the pie and so on while in the mobile space the problem becomes the mobile operator mm -hmm. operators want a larger cut of uh, of end user pays you got to do billing to the operator so there's got to be some innovation which needs to happen in one or both of these segments. But that's kind of the lay of the land when it comes to India. And do you, how do you see that changing? Or do, do you see that changing? So you, you talked about Japan. In Japan, certainly, iMode was fairly dominant. Um, and and you know, still, mobile web services are big right. there. But also, uh, you know, DSL and fiber became very significant as well. So. so I think in India, the kind of two changes which I see happening, if I look at the net space and the mobile space, I think in India, on the internet, what we will see happening is uh, the emergence of really mobile broadband. So I was talking to one of the telecom providers recently, and they have these USB modems, which are uh, basically wireless modems on USB. Now, typically, they've been used with laptops, you know, the people on the move, enterprise users. Interestingly, when I talked with them, they said, look, you know, the, the biggest demand we are getting for these 
these USB modems, because they are high speed, they are 3G speeds, is from consumers to connect their home PC, the fixed PCs, to the internet. Because in many places it's hard to get connectivity, the speeds are just not good. So people, even though people are willing to pay, the connectivity is pathetic <laughs> for, the, for the most part. So that I think can drive the growth um, of, of, of the internet really. And plus devices, uh, low cost devices, which really are network computers. So we have to solve both the connectivity problem and the device problem for the internet to grow in India. And then of course, once that grows, more usage starts happening, automatically the ad spends will increase. But that's kind of the change which needs to happen there. The mobile side is I think even more interesting. I think what's required on the mobile side really is to create an alternate ecosystem for value-added services to the, to the operator. So it's not really happened and uh, anywhere else uh, because companies tend to prefer to want to work with the operator and once you start working with the operator, it's very difficult to kind of break that relationship. But Docomo, so but there are two things which have happened. NTT Docomo actually showed the potential for an open marketplace where they had uh, thousands, tens of thousands of applications which got created and that drove users, you know, they went to about zero to 30 million in about three years in 99, 2002 timeframe. Apple has shown what's possible here in the US with, an, with a model which basically is independent, the App Store model, which is independent of the mobile operator. And I think that is really the opportunity which exists today to create what I call a digital services operator where there are four elements which one needs to put together in the mobile space. Alternate payments, so collecting money independent of the operator, which Apple's doing in the US through credit cards, uh, built up largely first through the iTunes music stuff which they sold. The second is uh, having a large reach, so we can reach tens of millions of people cost effectively, so you can make them aware of the services which are there. Third is an open publishing platform and marketplace, so third party providers, content providers, service providers can come in. And finally, an initial set of compelling services, which get people to want to go create the, the account. But I think if these four elements can be put together, there's a great opportunity to actually transform the mobile space and break the stranglehold that mobile operators have. Because what's happening today is that because of their focus primarily on voice and in India mainly rural kind of services, rural of launching services in rural areas, the top of the pyramid, which is about 100 million people in India, 25% of the base, they want new services, but they're not able to get to the operators. So there's an interesting opportunity, which I think can can be created in India, and then made to work outside. But but how does that happen, given the, the level of control that the operators have? Because presumably the operators will resist yeah. that, that change. Yeah. So the key thing to do here is to basically start with two uh, better channels on the mobile, which are in a way almost open. So SMS and voice, uh, because most phones are not uh, using and don't have data plans in India, but SMS and voice work on all phones. And now on SMS, if you can create push-based SMS services, which really now make it almost agnostic, you can make it agnostic of the order. You need essentially SMS aggregator capacity, which exists in every market. Businesses are using it to send SMSs and at very low, uh, uh, low price points compared to P2P pricing. These prices tend to be much lower because you're buying SMS capacity in bulk. And also the incremental cost of sending an SMS through any operator network globally is close to zero. I mean, you know that. <laughs> so this is an interesting thing now here where you can actually take create the equivalent of an SMS app store and a voice app store. This is the thing which 
Apple has basically not done today. They focused on content. So they're limited in a way to only the people who, who are buying their, their phones. But an SMS app store to fill what I call life's free moments, no now moments, you can create lots of services. Like in this, uh, we we're talking with Mukul, for example, earlier today, that can we create uh, a series of say 30 SMS, uh, packs of 30 SMSs, where you can educate people on innovation. So you send them an SMS at a fixed time every day, and then comes with a link. So you get a key idea, which you can read in 15 seconds. And then there's a link where you can explore that for maybe three or four paragraphs, more another 45 to 50 seconds to a minute. But basically because it's coming to people and it's permission based, it now opens up a whole new world for them. And on the mobile, people are willing to pay for everything that they get. So what this starts doing is creating an alternate channel. Now, because it's SMS and push based and because it's voice where you're dialing up and calling up a voice portal, like an IVR system and then listening to stuff, there is no way operators can block any of these things. And especially if you now have your own independent uh, payment collection mechanism, you can make these services priced. So now you get all the elements required to start offering services direct to the users without having to rely on all the operators. You need one friendly, one or two friendly operators for you to just push your SMSs in the system, be able to offer you the land, the, the, the voice capabilities. But, with, but you can actually do that in many markets, in most markets, because you always have someone who's willing to compete with the other person or other operators or basically um, wants to do more in that in that market. Mm -hmm. But I mean, at some point, even if you can prove out that model on, on SMS and voice, presumably there's demand for the smartphone types of applications, Absolutely. especially as, as you get to 3G and 4G in that capacity. Absolutely. So start with what works today. So when again, to go back to the Apple analogy, they started with music. Now they've gone into you know, apps and probably videos and ringtones and all that stuff. Today in, in, in India, SMS subscriptions and voice portals are 350 to 400 million dollars. So that's money being spent by uh, users, consumers, where the actual content providers and service providers are getting less than 20% of that money. So everyone's looking for a way to monetize mobile users because people have realized that you can't build a business on the internet relying only on advertising. It's got to be consumer pays and consumers are paying. The question is, how do you get a fair share or a significant share of the pie to then let you promote the service to be able to then reinvest back into creating new content? All of that starts need, that that rest of the ecosystem start needs starts to need, needs to fall in place. But what's missing is the platform, which basically allows for service discovery, for money collection, the kind of cash balance to be created. So where you make it prepaid, so rather than because in India we don't have too many credit card users, you do exactly what the mobile operators have done. Get people to create a small cash balance. So you're paying $2, putting money into your account, and then as you use the services, the money starts being decremented. But it's a model they're very familiar with. So the model, the prepaid model they're familiar with, content they're already using, and now because if we don't have the operator share really, which is, I think in many cases, predatory, you can now offer services at very compelling price points, maybe a third of the price points at which today they are being sold in the market or being offered in the market. If you can start putting this, I think you can lead, you will, you will see an explosion on the SMS voice side. You have the accounts being created and then you grow with the market. So then as 3G comes in, uh, you have the video, come, video, come, uh, video you can offer, offer video, you can offer uh, apps, you right. can offer content downloads, all of that. 
But start start with where things are today and which can work on every phone without the dependency on data plans and high-speed networks. Okay, so let me ask you one more question, and then sure. I guess we'll turn this around. You can ask some questions of me. Um, uh, how do you envision things going forward? Uh, I mean, is this is there going to be a global market ultimately of app store providers, or, or will this continue to be very much localized depending on the, the characteristics of okay. the market? Very interesting. <clears throat> so uh, I think what we, what we are seeing now is two kinds of app stores being created by the handset uh, makers. Um, so like Nokia's got in there, Apple's got in there. Mm -hmm. And now already some operators are starting to think of their own app stores. Okay, so the Vodafones and others, or Verizon's probably are all thinking about app stores. I think in both cases, what the app stores basically are doing is they are being offered to a limited set of users. So in the case of iPhone and Nokia, it's people who bought those phones. And again, here people tend to change their phones once in two years. So what happens then to your apps and the services you're subscribed to? What happens if you change operators? I think there's an opportunity to basically create operator and handset agnostic app stores. Okay. So essentially take some of the good ideas of the internet, the open access, etc. Make it available on the mobile with one big difference is that have people create a payment or a subscription relationship. I think that's probably in retrospect, if you see that's something which was missing on the internet. Now, I think if operators basically do billing for say like 10 or 15%, I think they could actually get a piece of the pie also. But if they're, if they insist on keeping 50% or so of what end users pay, I think it's going to create an opportunity for neutral third party marketplaces to get created who can create their own cash balance and who can now offer services which are independent of any of uh, any of uh, uh, the handset guys or the uh, handset companies or the operators that's one second is i think there is a need everyone's focus really has been on smartphones and uh, and the apps but what i think everyone forgets is that in markets like india 95% of the market doesn't use even in the us 70% i know it's changing but there's a market today especially in the 15 to 22 23 year old age group where it's sms and text and we're going to stay that way for some time. Uh, you know, there's a window opportunity at least for the next two years. So if you can get in there today, in the next say few months, start building the relationships with them, start getting them comfortable with with the SMS, voice, and today's services app store, which is independent of uh, uh, of, of your dependency on which service provider you're using or which handset company you're using. I think that is going to be the real opportunity. Which, which can start in a few countries, but it can actually be a global. I mean, theoretically, there's nothing that we are doing in India which can't be offered to any other, uh, to, a, to a mobile user anywhere in the world. So that's, I think, the big opportunity to, to really monetize mobile users directly, independent of the specific operators or the handset companies that they have. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.